Thanks for checking out the best of edition of the podcast. This is one of two parts of the best of. In this edition, you have all kinds of good stuff. Brian Curtis from The Ringer talks about Frank DeFord. I have the story of a veteran who is long gone, but I refuse to forget. And we also have me yelling that a baseball player is a stupid idiot. I don't think it's exactly what I said, but it's close. Also, Brian McNally, Talking Redskins, OTAs, our Redskins beat reporter. Join me as he does most Sundays on The Fan. Uh, All of that in this here podcast that starts right now. Sports media lost a legend today. Frank DeFord, 78 years old, contributor to HBO's Real Sports, NPR contributor, and probably most famously writer for Sports Illustrated for decades and when it comes to sports media and, and people covering it today, there are a few who do it better than Brian Curtis, editor-at-large for The Ringer. And he's going to join me now on the Toyota of Hollywood hotline. I am Craig Hoffman, in for Alex Dono tonight, here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining us. Uh, and I know you just finished your piece. So I'm making my way through it now. I- I'm going to start as broadly as I can. And when you heard the news, what was your reaction and kind of your first thoughts of Frank DeFord? Craig, that we had lost one of the Giants. We really had. You know, I think that that word is used a lot when famous people die. But this this was a guy who not only was a great sports writer, who was, as you point out, a multimedia guy on television and radio and NPR, but he was somebody who influenced a generation. And I think if you think of the people who are famous sports writers now, the ruling class, if you will, of sports writing, they were influenced by, they imitated, they were in awe of Frank DeFord. DeFord um, is such a unique personality. I was listening, as I mentioned in uh, my email to you, I actually listened to some of your podcast that you did with him. What was that, about a year and a half ago, a year ago? Yeah. Uh, and I was Something listening like to that, that yeah. earlier today, and he admits, like, I'm a bit of a ham, and it's one of the things that you write about in your piece <laughs> that he knows he was a personality. How did that manifest itself in his work? Well, it's funny. I mean, he looked like a personality. Anybody who saw him on TV, uh, you know, he was wearing these, he was very suave. You know, he used to have a pompadour, and then he, later in life he had his hair kind of slicked back, and he wore these, he wore purple a lot of the time. He was obsessed with the colored purple for whatever reason. Uh, and, you know, in writing, he was the same way. He was really a character. He felt... He didn't overdo it. There wasn't a ton I would first person, I would say, in his long magazine features. But you really felt like he knew the personality. He felt goofy. Here's another thing about Frank DeFord that was amazing. He was a beer commercial. He was a star of a Miller Lite ad. How many sports writers can say that? And so, you I know, know a lot of yeah, sports writers right. that want to. <laughs> Specifically for beer. All right now. Yeah. No, but he, um, you know, he was that big. And it, was, it wasn't just like, oh, here's the guy who writes reliable stuff. Like, here's the guy who was an outsized character in and of himself. You mentioned that DeFord worked with Dan Jenkins, both hired in 1962 by Sports Illustrated. They had cubicles next to each other but never saw each other because of Sports Illustrated's, as you describe it, lush travel budget. Or budget. How did the era in which Frank DeFord worked for Sports Illustrated affect the ability to do his work in that magazine journalism was the king of journalism at that time? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you hear people, especially now, unfortunately, old-timers talk about the great Sports Illustrated, what they're talking about is the 1960s. A couple of factors here. One is that they're working for Time, Inc., so that they have a lot of money. People like Frank DeFord have a lot of money to travel around the country, to go wherever they want. They've got expense accounts. They can entertain. It's this kind of era of journalism that, let me assure you, is long gone (laughs) in sports writing in any form. The second thing I think that's interesting in Frank's case is that he was covering basketball early on when he was in Sports Illustrated. That was his favorite sport. Uh, and there was nothing to speak of in basketball journalism at the time. Today we would think of Bill Simmons or Woj, right, or all these people who are Zach Lowe, who are all these big stars of basketball writing. Back then it was kind of the lowest rung on the, on the totem pole. You didn't want to be a basketball writer. It was way behind football and baseball and everything else. So he kind of had the world to himself. He could go out in the 60s NBA, and he could write about Russell, and he could write about Wilt, and he could write about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he was kind of one of the few people on a national level who was really that into the game. So I think the other thing he did, you know, his part of his legacy is really introducing Sports Illustrated and then the country to the possibilities of where basketball writing could go. Yeah, as a huge basketball fan who enjoys a lot of great profiles now, thank goodness for Frank DeFord on that front. You mentioned, too, um, his foray into that actually had to do with where he went to college, right? He was a Princeton grad, uh, unlike a lot of the state school guys that wash up in sports writing. And uh, one of the first pieces he pitched was a piece about Bill Bradley, who actually had been at Princeton as a freshman when DeFord was a senior. So he goes to his editors and said, I want to write about this kid named Bill Bradley. And his editors at SI are like, who? And then, of course, he goes and writes the piece. It's published in SI. Bill Bradley goes, not only to be a, a great basketball player and win a title with the next U.S. senator. And Frank said that made his name because he, was, he, he had seen that story before even his editors did. Brian Curtis of The Ringer with me, Craig Hoffman, here on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM, Alex Dono's show. I'm in for Dono tonight. Uh, we're talking about Frank DeFord, just a legend of the sports media industry who passed away this afternoon at the age of 78. And Brian, the, as we said in the intro, and as you touched on in one of your answers, he was a multimedia star, and obviously his career developed, went into a couple of different things. How did his NPR uh, presence kind of change the way sports is viewed in the greater culture? You know, that that's a great question, Craig. I think what's funny is I've met all these people. For me, Frank DeFord is a sports magazine writer, and his legacy to me is SI. But I've met all these people over the last couple of decades that, who are NPR listeners, and they say, oh, I love Frank DeFord. He's that guy on NPR. <laughs> they barely know about the legacy from Sports Illustrated. And to them, he's this kind of cultured, refined uh, wordsmith who gets them. These are people who don't even really love sports that much. But he was such a good writer and had such a kind of a suave commentary that they would actually listen to his sports pieces on NPR. So I think that's kind of another part of his legacy, is getting a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't be interested in this stuff like you and I would to be into sports. And it's really funny because, you know, I, I also write in this piece that the New York Times really wanted DeFord to become a columnist for them because he just seemed like this kind of very worldly guy. It didn't seem like he was a sports writer, you know, X's and O's and balls and strikes and all that stuff. But I think, again, I think that's his NPR legacy really is trying to get some people into the tent who otherwise wouldn't have been in there. 
then he eventually goes into television, HBO's Real Sports. Um, I know Sports Reporters, which obviously just ended its run, gets a lot of credit for putting sports writers on TV. But how much credit uh, or how much of a path did DeFord open for guys like, for instance, Kornheiser and Wilbon and PTI and maybe even a show like Sports Reporters? I guess Sports Reporters probably would have came before he was at HBO. But the idea that a sports writer could do more than just write. Yeah, I mean, I would say that what he did is he kind of cut a romantic figure that made it possible for those guys to kind of to kind of follow in his footsteps. You know, even if he probably wasn't on TV necessarily as much as they were just in the early days. I mean, this is what I'd say about Frank DeFord. I would say that it wasn't just that lots of people wanted to write like him. They wanted to behave like him. They wanted to be as cool as he was, right? They wanted to be this this kind of swashbuckling dude at the bar who was talking in perfect paragraphs and who was dressing the right way and who looked like an old movie star from the 40s. And to me, that's what I, when I think of, you know, when I think of sports writers that I want to be like, just that we want to write like these guys, we want to have the personality, we want to carry ourselves. And I think DeFord really, really set that out. You know, I mean, there's just a whole legion of guys who be like, oh yeah, that's what a sports writer looks like. If you actually walk into our offices, by the way, we're all wearing disgusting T-shirts and shorts. We barely combed our hair for the day. But that's what we try to live up to anyway. Hey, that sounds like a radio office, but that's a different story. (laughs) Perhaps we should all aspire to be more like Frank DeFord. Uh, Brian Curtis of The Ringers with me, Craig Hoffman, here on WQAM. I'm in for Dono tonight. When you talk specifically, you are a writer yourself, obviously, and, and you know you look at some of the best who do profiles now, I think obviously of Lee Jenkins at SI, Baxter Holmes at ESPN is terrific. There's some people that writing for your site, um, you know, what Jonathan Abrams uh, did for Grantland, and I believe he's now doing uh, for The Ringer, right? Uh, does JP uh, do stuff for The Ringer um, with you guys? Bleacher, Bleacher Report. Oh, that's right. That's right. He's with Bleacher. But like some of the, the oral histories and features that he's done are so good. What is it about a Frank DeFord profile that was um, revolutionary? What what tactically was he able to do that created such magical stories? One is he had great, interesting ideas. He could do the big stars like Jimmy Connors, the tennis player, famous guys like in the NBA, but he could also go find, he had an eye for really strange out-of-the-way stories. He did this one that I encourage everyone to just go look up called The Toughest Coach There Ever Was, about this coach at an out-of-the-way school in Mississippi. And it almost reads like this Mark Twain short story. It's like crazy. It's, just, it's like you can't believe this isn't fiction. But DeFord went out and wrote that piece, and that's, that's one of his best pieces. I think the other real gift he had was for language. And it wasn't fancy. It wasn't like he was trying too hard. He just wrote these really cleanly written easygoing, inviting sentences. And you would read them, and they were almost so simple that you would you would think, well, this piece isn't very complex. But as you thought about it, he really, really had been able to, in really plain language, explore all these kind of complicated themes and tell these really wide-ranging stories. And to me, when you look, when you, and you name some great profile writers there, that's how I would describe the forward. You know, it's almost deceptively simple prose, but really engaging stories and really kind of interesting, complicated ideas. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that one. It's one I haven't. I know there's um, a story on Jimmy Connors that has been making the rounds today that many think uh, is good. And actually, in the next segment, I will read DeFord from 2010 on Tiger Woods, combining the news of the day um, in a piece that was short for SI, but very, very good. Um, you did, and it's linked in your 
uh, written piece that's on the ringer right now on DeFord. You did a podcast with him that we mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, just a couple or just a year or so ago. Was there anything that you took out of that that immediately sprang to mind today or that has been particularly memorable that you've come back to multiple times uh, since you did that interview? You know, I, I did not claim to know him well, but what I remembered from that and all of our interactions, he was, he was the most courteous, wonderful guy whenever I called him up. I'd call him up as a sports media writer to help me chew over an idea or say, you know, I'd say, Frank, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a piece about this. Do you agree with this? Do you disagree with this? He, he couldn't have been nicer. He would always bat around an idea for me. And this is when he was, you know, had a full-time schedule at NPR and on Real Sports and all those other things and was well into his 70s. And I just remember him as this very courtly guy, almost old school. Again, that 40s movie star image comes to mind, like you were talking to Cary Grant or something like that. And he would always speak in these perfect quotations and these perfect paragraphs. And I just loved, you know, sort of sounding him out for ideas. It's not often you can pick up the phone and call a legend and say, hey, (laughs) help me out, Mr. DeFord. But he was always great with that. And, And today I was just thinking of all the, you know, you're always, you always remember people who are helpful to you and, you know, who, who take time that they don't have to take. And to me, that's, that's one of my memories of this guy, Frank. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Uh, Brian Curtis writes and is an editor at large for The Ringer. You can read his piece, What Frank DeFord Meant to Sports Writing, on The Ringer right now. And I also recommend the podcast that he did, uh, as again mentioned, about a year ago with Frank DeFord. Brian, I always appreciate you uh, taking the emails and getting back to me and then then coming on the show. Always enjoy talking to you, and I'm sure we'll do it again uh, down the road, hopefully under a, a little happier circumstances. Always fun, Craig. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Craig Hoffman in for Alex Dono tonight on Miami Sports Radio 560 WQAM. Uh, On this Memorial Day, I want to share a story of a veteran who simply does not get his due. This is a veteran, and and obviously the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day, today is a day we we remember those who have lost their lives serving this country. And and the story I want to share is about someone who did just that. Uh, The man's name is Wilmoth Sadat Singh, and he was an athlete in the 1930s, and uh, the reason I am aware of his story is that we share an alma mater, uh, that alma mater is Syracuse University, um, and that becomes relevant at, at a point later in this story um, that he went to Syracuse because of who was also at Syracuse at that time. Wilma Sadat Singh, I'm going to tell the end of the story first. Uh, it's kind of explain why I'm, I'm going to share this story on Memorial Day. Wilma Sadat Singh was one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, 332nd Airborne Division. He died while flying a training mission over to Lake Huron after he got transferred from Alabama, obviously where the Tuskegee Airmen were originally, um, and then uh, was fly- or transferred to Michigan, flying over to Lake Huron and passed away. When his plane went down, when the plane was discovered, his parachute was 
found attached uh, to like caught on the plane. And so whether he tried to eject and then got caught or whether he uh, did eject and then fell and, and, and into the water and got caught on the plane, whatever it was, um, that is how his life ended. Why his story is important is not just because he lost his life while serving this country. What is important to share is the story of Wilmoth Sadat Singh, the athlete. Um, and it's what makes the fact that he chose, made the decision to serve that much more heroic. Sadat Singh, uh, it sounds like he is, is a Hindu man, is, is an Indian man, is, is of some kind of Middle Eastern descent. He's not. He's an African-American man. Uh, His father died when he was seven, uh, and his mother married a man from the West Indies named Sadat Singh. And when they married, his mother and his stepfather, uh, he was adopted by the stepfather and adopted, in doing so, the name Sadat Singh. So Wilmoth Sadat Singh became his name. And he went to Syracuse University as a stud basketball player and one day was playing football uh, intramurals out behind the uh, the gym, Archibald Gym, which still stands in Syracuse. Uh, it is finally, after almost 100 years, going to get knocked down and redone uh, here soon. But uh, the same Archibald Gym that, that I lifted weights and played basketball in as a student, was the same one that uh, that Wilmoth Sadat Singh was discovered outside of in 1936-ish. And by 1937, uh, he was on the football team because this coach had seen him and asked him come out to come out, and he did. And Sadat Singh uh, was a star. He played halfback in the single-wing uh, offense, and that's kind of a, a hybrid between a running back and a, and a quarterback. And part of the reason why it's a shame that he doesn't get his due is he's one of the first college football players ever to use the forward pass effectively. And where Sadat Singh's story becomes notable and the reason uh, why it became publicly known a couple of years ago uh, revolves around a game against the University of Maryland in 1937. In 1937, blacks were still not only barred from playing athletics at uh, participating in athletics at the University of Maryland, they were barred from being students. It wasn't until 1951 that the University of Maryland allowed black students. It wasn't until 1962 they finally had a black athlete. And so as Syracuse prepared to go and play at Maryland, it was unknown that Syracuse had a black player in Sadat Singh. This is pre-Twitter, pre-internet, and mostly pre-television. Sports weren't exactly the same in terms of coverage back then. You couldn't go to ESPN.com, click on Wilma Sadat Singh, and go, oh, he's black. Not, not a thing in 1937. And it went to the point that and Syracuse wasn't going to tell anybody. Um, and in fact, they might have not even known. The Washington Post, in previewing the game, wrote about Sadat Singh and called him a full blooded Hindu um, and wrote about his performance the week before. And this is 1937 again. Uh, Ivy League teams were the absolute best of the bunch. 
And they had just beaten Syracuse, had just beaten Cornell. So they go uh, to Maryland, and the day before the game, it is told, uh, or it is told in a local black publication that Syracuse had a black star, and it was Sadat Singh. Well, Maryland reads that. A word gets back. They find out, and they tell Syracuse, he doesn't play or you don't play, and you forfeit the game. He's not allowed here. Syracuse, shamefully, I say this of my alma mater, shamefully decided to make Sadat Singh sit. They lost the game 13-0. Two teams played next year in Syracuse. Sadat Singh played. Syracuse won 53 to nothing. As if that story wasn't a classic case of racism and interesting enough, what makes it more interesting is not only that after incidents like that, Wilmoth Sadat Singh chose to serve his country and felt compelled after the attack on Pearl Harbor to join the United States military, is that there is another well-known character in this story. The grandfather, the father, the patriarchal figure of modern sports broadcasting is a man named Marty Glickman. Many of you probably know that name um, as he was the sports broadcaster in New York um, for a long time. Jets, Giants, I believe he called both of their games, uh, was the Knicks announcer forever. And he has his own story of athletic discrimination. Marty Glickman was a football star while at Syracuse before he became a broadcaster. And he was also a track star, so good at track that he made the Olympic team in 1936. Marty Glickman was Jewish. The 1936 Olympics were in Berlin. And for as much as Jesse Owens did to help uh, take the myth away of white supremacy in Hitler's Germany in 1936 in Berlin, the United States has its own badge of shame. While Owens shined, they did not, at the last second, they caved and did not let Marty Glickman run. Glickman and another teammate were supposed to run in the 4x100. They were not allowed. They were replaced by alternates, and thus they made the trip to Germany to not compete. It was but a year later that Glickman was at the University of Maryland with his Syracuse teammates and sat quietly as Wilmoth Sadat Singh was told to sit. HBO did a documentary on Glickman just a few years ago, and he said that until that that still at that point, uh, and this was you know in the 1980s, you know almost 50 years later, and this is something he carried with him till the day he died. He was never really able to forgive himself from that. He understood probably better than anyone what Sadat Singh was feeling, and the hopelessness that that was, and and he did nothing. Um. Sadat Singh, then they both go on to graduate. Sadat Singh actually was a a showcase basketball player in the Washington, D.C. area for a long time or for a couple of years uh, from when he graduated until 1941. I mean, he was playing on a team a la Harlem Globetrotters. Um, Obviously, no white players were in the NBA yet. Uh, Professional sports weren't integrated at all. And so Sadat Singh was playing on this this exhibition team and they would have 20,000 people come out and watch him and they play. 
And uh, then in 1941, the attack happens on Pearl Harbor. He decides to join the military. Uh, it's a new uh, marching unit in uh, Alabama. Uh, and we later know them as the Tuskegee Airmen. He was one of the original, gets transferred up to Michigan. And then on the training mission over Lake Huron, he passed away uh, as his plane failed. So that's a story that in a lot of ways is worth telling. And it's one that I think is as worth telling today on Memorial Day as any other day. And so whenever I get the chance to tell it, I do. Um, I was informed of it while I was a student at Syracuse. And um, in a way, as someone who is is intimately familiar, I feel it's my duty to kind of pass it on to as many people as I can. And that's what this day in so many ways is about. It's about sharing the stories of the men who gave and the women who gave everything for this country, for the ability for us to do stupid things like this and have talk radio shows where we get to talk about sports. What more meaningless thing could we do? But we do it and we enjoy it and it's fun because we should be able to have fun. That's that's the freedom of this country. And for those that have paid the ultimate price and those they've left behind, all we can simply say is thank you and we'll do our best to keep passing on their stories. And so for today, I hope that I have done at least some level of my part. If you want more on the story of Wilmoth Sadat Singh, I tweeted out a link at Craig Hoffman a couple of years ago. Um, Deadspin wrote a piece as Maryland finally uh, apologized. Basically, no one was aware. It wasn't something they were actively hiding. Just no one was aware, and they became aware of the story. And Kevin Anderson, the athletic director at Maryland, um, brought in Sadat Singh's family and, and honored them and him and formally apologized. Um, and upon that happening, there was a really good story written on Deadspin. I tweeted out that link if you want to learn more. Greg Hoffman with you on the fan talking Redskins OTAs with our Redskins beat reporter, Brian McNally, who joins us now for what has become his usual Sunday visit. Good morning, Brian. How are you this holiday weekend? Craig, what's happening? How's your holiday weekend going? Oh, uh, it's good. Was in New York for a couple of days. Uh, got back late last night. Uh, ready to go today. Got the show today. Got a show tomorrow. So keeping keeping rather busy. Uh, obviously, it was a busy week for you. Headed out to Ashburn. Uh, said hello to all the fellows. Said hello to the players uh, for the first time in a while. And and let's focus on a couple of groups and how they look. You wrote about the safeties at thefandc.com um, and, and what Jay Gruden thought, which is he's really impressed with DJ Swearinger and Suha Cravens. You got to see him with your own eyes. What did you see? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, um, you know, they, they looked good. They look like players adjusting though. And, and that's what you'd expect. I mean, Cravens obviously uh, was at linebacker last year. was <clears throat> trying to transition. Um, DJ Swearinger was used more, kind of used in a dual role in, in Arizona last year. But I think a lot of people are not sure that he's a, a true free safety. If I put true in quotes, um, he thinks he is, he thinks he can play there. He likes playing there. Um, but to do it full time, if, if that's the, the plan that they're going to have going forward, um, that's, that's going to take some adjusting too. Um, and there's, there's questions those guys will have to answer throughout training camp. So it is a good thing. And I mentioned this in the story that it's been, uh, it's been really since Sean Taylor, that they had, um, a legitimate player back there, a young kind of rising star type, not to compare either one of them to, to Taylor, who was. Um, obviously headed toward a, a brilliant career, but 
it just shows you how long the Redskins have kind of been wandering the wilderness here, trying to find safeties. I was I was going over the rosters of past years. They've used dozens of combinations of players and all sorts of veterans and journeymen and. Um, you know, even draft picks like LeRon Landry, none of them have worked out for any length of time. So the hope is that Swearinger, who's still just 25, and, and Sua, who doesn't turn 22 until July, can can maybe be those guys. But, but for now, there's questions whether or not they can adjust to it. Brian McNally with us on the fan. The other big position of interest defensively, is the outside linebacker spot. And, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing these tweets from everybody who's out there like, man, the Redskins, Redskins have so much depth that Trent Murphy might not get that many snaps when he gets back from uh, suspension. Like, how, oh, my goodness. Uh, is that, are, are we really at that point already where the, the draft pick of Ryan Anderson and then Junior Gallette running around in New Jersey again points to that as a position of strength? Like, is Preston Smith look that good? What, what's happening there? No, I don't, I don't think so. That's a totally fair point. I mean, Preston Smith has a lot, speaking of guys who have a lot to prove, um, you know, that's, that's someone who was called out as recently as November by his teammates and coaches, um, you know, for having, I remember having, I don't think I've ever seen a guy have a better game than he did against the Vikings and yet kind of get backhanded by everybody afterwards. Like we need that every week, bro, you better bring it. And, he, and you're not. And, uh, and you know, he only finished with, I think four and a half sacks, but he had, if you include the playoff game in his rookie year, he had nine, um, plus the, the safe with the safety against green Bay. So, um, no, I, I can't, there's no way I could call Preston Smith a, a guarantee or a lock. I think, I think Trent Murphy has put himself in a bad spot in that somebody could emerge to take those snaps, but it's a long way from there. And obviously Murphy is suspended for four games. We, we talked to him about that at, at length. Um, but it's a long leap from that part when he shows up again in, uh, in week six after the bye to play, um, from, those guys actually doing it. I mean, Gillette, like you said, he was on the field and the Redskins were surprised because I think Jay Gruden had said the week before that uh, he would not be participating in team drills. He was, he didn't just do individual. He was actually out on the field a little bit, some nickel packages. So um, that was great to see that that's good. Ryan Anderson still learning the ropes. Um, he, he's out there as well. Obviously Ryan Kerrigan is the, is the mainstay, but I, I have a feeling, um, you know, that there's, there's going to be enough snaps to go around for uh, for Trent Murphy when he returns. There's still a lot of question marks at that spot. To, to label it a strength, I think, is a little premature based on one open OTA session that we saw. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. When you look at the receiver position, was it kind of staggering? Like, wow, these guys are, are huge when you got Doxon out there and, and Terrell Pryor in person. Sometimes it does take that in-person view to, to really let that sink in. Was that something that was immediately noticeable as the offense took the field? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, throw Brian Crick quick in there as well. Um, kind of a, a lesser option, obviously, as a, a free agent. Um, but I mean, Doxon, uh, Pryor, these are these are big guys, six two, six four. Um, you know, Kirk Cousins talked a lot, Craig, about adjusting to throwing to guys like that and um, kind of working on it, drilling it, getting used to uh, bigger catch radi- <clears throat> radiuses from uh, from these players. Uh, it's just different. I mean, it's not, you know, not necessarily better or worse, but, um, you know, Pierre Garçon didn't have those necessarily physical, uh, he was a physical receiver, but he wasn't necessarily a big, tall receiver. And Deshaun Jackson looked like a guy playing another sport. He looked like a hockey or lacrosse player, but his speed was so great that 
um, that became its own, um, you know, it, it, its own way for him to dominate. So it's different for Kirk, and he, they all kind of have to get on the same page. I mean, he's never played with Pryor. He's never really played with Doxon other than a, a handful of games. Remember, uh, Josh hardly practiced last year. It's, it's not only that he only played two games, he didn't really practice the entire off season except for a handful of times. So a lot of work still to be done with those guys to get on the same page. Um, they're confident they will. Uh, and, and cousins was also really, really interesting when he talked about prior playing the position as a quarterback that, that he thought the way a quarterback thinks and that made kind of communicating with him, um, uh, on a different level than you would with most receivers. I thought that was a, a pretty interesting point. You can read more about uh, what Terrell Pryor's quarterback background uh, and how that interacts with Kirk and, and that on thefandc.com from Brian. Um, Kirk also talked about his contract a little bit. I don't think there's really anything to report there. He just said deadlines are probably going to be when this happens. So, yay, we get to wait until July. Um, so that's that. Uh, but speaking speaking of the offense and another group of big dudes outside of Chris Thompson, the running back position um, is certainly an interesting one to what look at uh, in terms of who's going to start um and it was also who was not there that that was interesting um one what'd you see from Samaj jp ryan and rob kelly and, and uh how that position battle may play out for the starters job and two what is the latest on matt jones who was not there yeah i mean uh you know p ryan certainly and and kelly as well look good i mean it's it's tough with running backs and otas to sure Sure. You don't get that physicality. You don't get the tackling, but you can still see, you know, how they look. What you know, what shape they're in, um, the the speed they're playing with. Uh, I, you know, both look, both look. I mean, P Ryan looks legitimate, Greg. The more and more you think about it, I mean, this is a guy who really got more of the work than even Joe Mixon at Oklahoma, who obviously was a was a high pick. You know, had obviously had issues and um, you know the domestic violence incident and, and slipped in the draft. So. Uh, but is it was an unquestioned if you just took it on pure talent, a first round talent, and P Ryan really got more work than than Mixon did. Um, even when they were both, you know, both back and, and playing full time um, last year at Oklahoma. So, uh, you know, this is a guy, and then you add Rob Kelly in, who obviously has a year of experience under his belt, who the coaches really like, um, and Chris Thompson. You know, as Jay Gruden said, really quietly. Kind of, kind of comparable to Jamison Crowder, right? Kind of become one of the best in the league at his position that no one around the league really thinks about or knows a ton about. He gets overshadowed by by so many um, so many players here, even. Um, and so you, you add that group. Not sure there's a place for Matt Jones here, um, and I, I think that has to play a part in the uh, in his absence from OTAs. Uh, his agent didn't respond to request for comment, and and Matt didn't either. And Jay Gruden kind of rolled him under the bus a little bit and said, you'll have to ask Matt why he's not here. Um, certainly, if your intention is to prove to the coaches that you belong, uh, that you've fixed your, your fumbling issues, that you are um, capable of fighting for a job in training camp, as, as Jay said, he at least expects Matt Jones to, to be and to do. Um, not showing up for OTAs is like the opposite of what you would do. So clearly there's some issues behind the scenes. Uh, between both sides, it's it's hard to see him being on this roster if um, if that you know if if this stance continues much longer. Yeah, it's really just it, it's anti competition. It seems like you know who knows what the real story is, but if it's just like sour grapes, man, you you got to come compete. That's how you're going to make a team. And, 
And Craig, I feel like if, if it was something like, look, if a family member was sick or it was something legitimate, right. they would have said that. And it does, it doesn't necessarily have to give us like exactly what's going on, but you, you can't, I mean, everyone knows the situation. Everyone knows Matt didn't play at the end of last year. Everyone knows he wasn't happy about it in that context. You can't just come up and say, um, yeah, I don't know why Matt's here. You'll have to ask Matt if, if it's something like serious behind the scenes or, uh, or an injury or anything like that. You, you don't, you don't roll the guy. It's just not what coaches do in that case. Or if they do, they'll eventually be called out on it and you'll make the organization look dumb. So, Hey, right. I guess that could happen, but more than likely with the context, um, this is a, a message from Matt Jones that the, it's not going to go. It's going over like a lead balloon. I'd say at Redskin park. Yeah, seems like it. Brian McNally, you can read him at thefandc.com on Twitter, at McNally 14 And you can hear him pretty much every Sunday morning with me at some point between 9 and noon on The Fan. Brian, I always appreciate it, man. Uh, I'll see you soon, uh, and have a good rest of the holiday weekend. Sounds good, Greg. You too. Harper, straight up on the right side of the infield, the left side toward the middle, and the pitch inside hit him. And Harper just pointed out. Harper's charging the mound, and he throws the helmet, and now there's a fist fight. Harper's landed a couple of blows, and now the dugouts have emptied. They've been separated. Strickland was knocked down. Harper was still on his feet, and Harper had no doubt that Strickland threw at him and threw the helmet in his direction. The helmet was way wide toward the second baseman's area. Well, that's fortunate. That's about the only thing. And Zimmerman has just yanked Harper and is taking Harper toward the dugout. Harper's off by himself with Zim, carrying him to the dugout, basically, pushing him into the dugout. Well, the last thing the Nationals needed was for Harper to get himself thrown out of the game. Well, and, and potentially suspended. I mean, he charged the mound. Yep. And that, that all goes back. It's the first time he's faced him since the postseason. And, and, and Strickland, Strickland waited three years to exact his revenge for him taking him to McCovey Cove. Is that unbelievable? Three years. The Giants are trying to pull him I mean, out that, of the that, melee. Jason Worth that was involved in, in the screaming and shouting and some shoving. George Contos. I mean, look, what they're doing. The look, what they're, look what they're doing to Strickland. There are three to, people trying to pull him off the field. I don't know if he knows that Harper's already in the Nationals tunnel to the clubhouse. It's Charlie Slows and Dave Jagler on the Nationals baseball network. Uh, flagship is our CBS affiliate up in D.C., 106.7 The Fan. Um, What Hunter Strickland did is chicken bleep. And it seems like more and more people are starting to agree with this sentiment that throwing baseballs at other human beings is ridiculous. This pisses me off like few things in sports. The unwritten rules of baseball are something that no one agrees upon. And from a humane standpoint, throwing a hard-wound object 97 miles an hour, which is what Hunter Strickland did. Hunter Strickland's fastball, the hit Bryce Harper in the hip. Listen to the start of this again. This sounds like a home run ball. For Harper... Straight up on the right side of the infield, the left side toward the middle, and the pitch inside hit him. That thud was the ball hitting Bryce Harper in the hip. And Harper has every right to be ticked off and go out. And um, Now, his helmet throw was about as accurate. I saw this on Twitter earlier. I thought it was a good comparison to uh, to 50 Cent's first pitch a couple years ago in, at the Mets game where it... it um. 
it almost went into the dugout from the pitcher's mound. That was that was not a good a good accurate delivery from from Fitty. But Strickland gets a, a claw on Harper, and then Harper gets a, a good shot in on Strickland. And this stems from a home run that Harper hit in a postseason game three years ago. Three years ago. And you're going to hit a dude at 97? What a joke. And the question going around now is like, what's it going to take to finally stop this? And the answer is ridiculous suspensions. Suspend Hunter Strickland for 35, 40, 50 games. You throw at someone intentionally, and you're suspended. And then you get an old-school baseball guy. Oh, we got to let the players police themselves. If they police themselves, then they it'll take care of itself. There's no need for the league to get involved. Apparently, uh, old baseball guy's a 1920s sports writer. I may go get my typewriter. Baseball players have proven over a course of quite a while now, they are not capable of policing themselves. They are irresponsible in policing themselves. And part of the reason that they cannot police themselves is there are no laws. If someone else is successful against you, that is apparently okay to then throw at them. Bryce Harper hits a baseball into McCovey Cove in a playoff game, even if he takes his clothes off and runs around the bases nude in celebration. Why do you get to then hit him with a baseball three years later? Baseball is the only sport, especially now that the NFL has like said, hey, cool, you guys can celebrate again. The NFL, you know, legislated against celebration, but the players themselves didn't know NFL players ever get mad when the other guy celebrates, they'll talk a little bit, but then they'll celebrate right back when they make a play. If you're mad about a home run ball, strike the guy out the next time and f- run back to the dugout nude. Or just just fist pump or stare him down. It's competition, man. Have fun. Lighten up, Francis. Throwing baseballs at people is ridiculous, and the league needs to do something about it. And as uh, there's also some breaking news uh, that Mike Trout is injured um, and out for a while. And I don't believe that happened on a hit by pitch. But like we've had that happen before that some of the best players in the game are out because they get hit by pitches. And the last thing we need is is Bryce Harper. Now, obviously, if you're a Marlins fan and you're looking at the standings going, hey, we could use the Nationals to suck for a while because all of us in the NLE stink. Um, That's a different story. But when you look at the ideal situation for baseball from a marketing perspective of having their stars play, you need them on the field. And more, I would say, uh, realistically, you just you don't need to be seen as a barbaric sport played by morons, childish morons. And when you have people hitting each other with baseballs for success against them three years ago in a playoff game, that's exactly what you've got. 
I don't know Hunter Strickland. I don't know him at all. But my opinion of him as of this is you are a childish moron. And if you're not, well, you sure as bleep acted like one. So grow up. That'll do for this edition of The Best Of. Again, this is one of two from the week. If you want more on the NBA Finals, check out the other edition of The Best Of. That has chats with Howard Beck, Tim Bontemps, and Damon Amendolara. Thanks to all the guests that joined me on both WQAM and 106.7 The Fan this week. I'll be back at it Sunday morning, 9 to noon on The Fan. Plus, we have Train with the Best podcast. We just put an episode out on Sunday with former U.S. Women's National Team midfielder Lori Lindsay, which was fantastic. And then Lorenzo, Chris, and I get back to it this week. So new episode probably coming on program design this week, which I know is a much anticipated episode. All right, I'm done talking. I'm going to go home now because I've been at this radio station for 11 hours. Goodbye. Goodbye.